From CPR News, this is Colorado Matters. The U.S. border with Mexico used to run straight through Colorado until a war in the mid-1800s. The treaty that ended the war and created the region we live and know today is going on display at History Colorado from the National Archives. We'll talk about its impact and why it's still relevant today. Then, the National Brotherhood of Skiers marks 50 years on the slopes this weekend in Colorado with an ongoing mission. We're on our way to breaking that stereotype and that myth that Black people don't ski. That's the farthest thing from the truth. I've been skiing over 51 years. So when people tell me Black people don't ski, I look at them like they've got two heads because I've been skiing my whole life. And it's something that I totally enjoy. Working toward inclusion in all snow sports. What you get on a daily basis from Colorado Public Radio is thanks in large part to an ever-growing and dedicated community of support. As a member, you do more than listen. You help fund CPR. Thank you. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC. I'm Chandra Thomas-Whitfield. The U.S. border with Mexico used to run straight through Colorado. The U.S. took over the southwestern part of the country after it waged a war with Mexico in the 1840s. The pieces of paper that ended that war and created the region we live in and know today is the Treaty of Guadalupe Hidalgo. You can see actual pages from the treaty at History Colorado starting tomorrow. We're talking about this history with Nikki Gonzalez. She studies the borderlands and is a former Colorado State historian. She is now vice provost at Regis University. And Nick Sines teaches history at Adams State University University in Alamosa. Welcome to you both. Thank you, Chandra. We're happy to be here. Thank you for having us. Nikki, can you tell us more about the war between the U.S. and Mexico that led to the U.S. getting the other half of Colorado and so much of the southwestern U.S.? What should we know about that war? Sure. So that's a great question. So I guess, you know, a lot of historians describe it as a war of conquest. So put it in the context of American history at the time, the 1830s, 1840s, and that was a time of manifest destiny when the United States was an expanding nation, expanding westward with the belief that they had some God-given right to to conquer those lands, which they defined as as virgin lands or ready to be civilized. And so this was a war that was provoked with Mexico over a border dispute. Um, President Polk certainly knew what he was doing. And it was a war that, I mean, one of the things that he really wanted was the the ports of California, which were incredibly valuable at the time. I mean, it opened up trade with the Pacific. And so, yes, it was a war of conquest. It was a war for um, the conquest of some very valuable territory. Nick, you live in Alamosa, part of the San Luis Valley. The old border cut right through that part of the state. What did the end of the war and the signing of the Treaty of Guadalupe Hidalgo mean for people who were suddenly living in the U.S.? That's absolutely correct. You know, this time period is one in which we're actually starting to see settlement of the San Luis Valley uh, for the first time. So there are attempts in the 30s and the 1840s uh, to lay claim to land grants uh, in the San Luis Valley. 
Uh, and the, the war really marks a, a turning point for the future of those land grants. Uh, the treaty that is hammered out uh, included a article, Article 10, uh, that guaranteed the status of those land grants. But ultimately, uh, when the treaty goes up for ratification in the U.S. Senate, uh, Article 10 is stripped out. Uh, and so mm. there is no uh, federal protection for those land grants. And so what we see in the San Luis Valley uh, is in the years after the war, uh, a, a process of adjudication that in time leads to the dispossession of a lot of those original uh, land-grant heirs. Nikki, what did the treaty mean for for indigenous people, specifically who lived in the areas that became part of the U.S.? Well, the treaty meant, I mean, they didn't have a representation in the final drafting of the treaty. And it should be noted also that indigenous peoples, and we're talking Comanche, Kiowa, um, Ute, um, Apache, and so on, really played an, a significant role in the history leading up to the treaty. And so, you know, there were hostilities, there, there were conflicts um, among all groups, the Americans, the Mexicans, and the indigenous peoples. And so for them, it meant, you know, further dispossession of their lands. I mean, all of a sudden they're under the American regime, and so they would lose their lands, eventually be put onto reservations. And so it really determined so much of what would come for those those indigenous groups. Today is actually the 175th anniversary of the treaty signing. Nikki, help me understand how to think about the treaty and its relevance in present day. Sure. So I think it's wonderful that we have access to the actual treaty. It's such an educational tool. And really, by thinking about the treaty, we're able to, it's like a window into so many of the issues that the treaty represented. I mean, we can think about U.S. foreign relations in the mid-19th century. We can look at, um, you know, the histories of the people who were directly affected by the treaty, whether they be indigenous people or Mexican, Mexican-American people. Mm. Um, we can look at the, the issue of manifest destiny and how that shaped lives and shaped the history of the mid-19th um, century. So, Nick, in your view, what makes the treaty most relevant today? Yeah, I, I would say that this is a real turning point uh, in the history of North America. It, it, it marks the, the end of a sort of Spanish and Mexican frontier, uh, the beginning of a process of consolidation of the U.S. over the West. Uh, as, as Nikki mentioned, this is a, a really decisive moment uh, in Native American history. And something that we talk about less, uh, the, the, this treaty is in many ways a kind of accelerant on the simmering hostilities uh, of the emerging, emerging sectional crisis. So uh, Ralph Waldo Emerson in 1846 said, Mexico will poison us, uh, a reference to uh, the, the, this problem uh, of all this land in the West uh, and the implications there for the expansion of slavery. So in some ways, you could say that the seeds of the U.S. Civil War uh, are embedded in this particular document. So a really important piece, not just of the U.S.-Mexico War, uh, but also the emergence of the U.S. Civil War. Now, Nick, does it tell us something about the diversity of Latinos in the U.S. today? You know, I think certainly um, in, in terms of thinking about uh, the Latino presence, uh, not, not just in the Southwest, but in the United States more broadly, uh, this treaty really marks uh, the first conversation uh, about 
race uh, apart from uh, African-American identity in the context of the U.S. fabric of society. Uh, there are uh, really uproarious uh, discussions in the Senate uh, about the annexation uh, of non-white people into the fabric of U.S. society. Uh, and that begins, I would say, a conversation about Mexican uh, and other Latinx identities uh, being part of the fabric of U.S. life uh, in ways that carry all the way to the present. Let's talk more about what came after the treaty was signed in 1848. Nikki, earlier we mentioned land grants. Could people hold on to their property after the U.S. took over this territory from Mexico? Well, it became increasingly difficult because of that, the striking of Article 10 from the from the treaty. And so what you see is a lot of land theft. You see speculators moving into the territory and, and claiming those land rights, you know, through through. Uh, illegal means or really legal means according you know according to american land law and so you see a lot of conflict in my my personal um i guess specialization is the sangre de cristo land grant which is in in southern colorado and it um it was about a million acre grant that was granted in 1843 and i cover the the community's fight for about 140 years to regain land rights that were comp- that were continuously challenged and taken away and then and then won back and then finally in 2002 the Colorado Supreme Court ruled in the favor of the community members of San Luis and and ruled that they could that their land rights dating back to that Mexican land grant were indeed valid. And so what you see is a real struggle. And I would say the majority of people lost land because because of of the land theft that occurred. And the treaty really wasn't there to provide any protection of those land rights. Like Nick was saying, it became a separate process, which the U.S. Congress would have to validate or legitimate the land grants through an entirely different process because the U.S. government did not want to relinquish control over those lands and so reserved this separate process, which they could deny the validity of land grants and thus open it up to American settlement. So lots of litigation, lots of struggle. You're listening to Colorado Matters from CPR News, and I'm Chandra Thomas-Whitfield. We're talking about the Treaty of Guadalupe Hidalgo, which made southern and western Colorado part of the United States. A disclaimer, History Colorado, where the treaty is going on display, is a sponsor of CPR and KRCC. Nick, Colorado was not a state when the U.S. took control over these lands. So can you explain what state or states was the land the U.S. got from Mexico part of? And how did it eventually become part of Colorado? Sure. Good question. So in 1848, when the treaty is signed, uh, Colorado does not exist. The territory of Colorado appears on maps for the first time in 1861. And then, of course, Colorado doesn't become a state until 1876. We're the centennial state for that reason. Mm, So for the first uh, little bit more than a decade uh, that this part uh, of the country that is Colorado today uh, is part of the United States, uh, it's divided into four portions. So the Nebraska Territory, uh, where Denver is today, would have been the Kansas Territory, the Western Slope, 
would have been Utah territory. And where I am in the San Luis Valley, uh, this was New Mexico. And so even though there is a transfer of the San Luis Valley from Mexican uh, to U.S. hands, uh, the, the valley remains a part of the New Mexico Territory, and uh, that influences a lot of uh, its culture uh, and its traditions. Uh, significantly, uh, one of the articles of the treaty guaranteed citizenship uh, to those persons living in the Mexican Session Territory, provided that they were part of a state. Uh, and so, interestingly, even though the treaty recognized that uh, those persons who were formerly Mexican nationals uh, would be guaranteed certain protections, because Colorado wasn't yet a state, they weren't fully, in a sense, enfranchised uh, as full-fledged citizens uh, of the United States, setting up a disparity in terms of their ability to fully participate uh, in uh, American society. I think it's interesting that people may know that Southern Colorado became part of the U.S. with the Mexican-American War, but so did Western Colorado. That was also part of the treaty. Nikki, what industries or trades came into Colorado and the southwestern part of the country when the U.S. took over this land? What did it open up? That's a great question. It opened up, I would say, mainly the railroad and mining. So mining would be a huge part of both Southern Colorado and Western Colorado industries. And so with the treaty, with the transfer of that um, jurisdiction over to the United States, we see those extractive industries move in. And some of the communities that were settled on those land grants, um, they would go on to fight against those extractive industries. For example, in the San Luis Valley, there's this huge fight against Battle Mountain Mining, which was a gold mining enterprise um, on those, those land grant lands. And so there's this constant tension that occurs through the years. But I would say, you know, those extractive industries, including agriculture and ranching, were able to move in um, because of the because of the treaty. Briefly, Nick, in school we learn about the Louisiana Purchase as the big land acquisition that changed the course of the United States. Why do you think the Treaty of Guadalupe Hidalgo and the Mexican-American War aren't more widely taught as part of U.S. history? I, I think some of this depends on where you are in the country. I think Colorado, uh, particularly through the auspices of history, Colorado is getting better at telling uh, some of this story. Uh, but this is a this is a pretty large land transfer as well. Uh, just to give you a sense of the impact for Mexico, uh, the loss of uh, the, the the West or what we consider the West from a, a U.S. vantage, what was the Mexican North, it amounted to fifty five percent of Mexican territory. So this was a mm. tremendous loss uh, for Mexico. Um, I, I think because uh, in U.S. history, in some ways, we continue this narrative of, of manifest destiny. We, we see the acquisition of the West as sort of inevitable. Uh, we, we don't pause often enough to reflect on the fact that things weren't uh, so inevitable in real time and that mm. this was a process that was tremendously fraught for the persons who lived through it. Nick and Nikki, thank you both for joining us. Thank you so much, Chandra. Thank you. Nick Sines teaches history, including Chicano history at Adams State University in Alamosa. Nikki Gonzalez is a former state historian, now at Regis University. The treaty is on display at History Colorado in Denver starting tomorrow through May. Then it will go back to the National Archives in Washington, D.C. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC. 
I'm Jenny Brendine, CPR education reporter. Colorado is offering free preschool this fall through the Universal Preschool Program, or UPK. If you signed up, CPR wants to know more. Like, how many hours did you request? Are you optimistic you'll be matched with a provider you want? If your child gets into the program, what will it mean for your family? And what would you like to know about the Universal Preschool Program, UPK? Tell us at CPR.org. When most people think of Colorado, they think of mountains. And when they think about mountains in Colorado, they likely think about skiing. But chances are, for many, that image of someone soaring down the slopes is not necessarily that of a person of color, particularly not a Black person. Well, for the past 50 years, one organization has been working diligently to change that. My name is Raven. I live in Denver proper, and I do snowboarding. It's basically a new experience for me. I started snowboarding last season, and I've just been getting out there learning sort of with the community of other BIPOC skiers and snowboarders, and it's been pretty amazing. I felt that something like this wasn't possible for people of color just because there's a lot of barriers to entry as far as experience and having the money to buy equipment and even having the ability to travel to the mountains. So this community has just opened my eyes to like all of the different outdoor activities that I can be a part of. Hi, my name is David. I'm based in Colorado Springs, Colorado, and I've been a part of the National Black Ski Convention and BIPOC Mountain Collective for three years. When you go out with a group of snowboarders, it feels like you're the only people in the whole world once you get to the right spot. And finding good powder in the trees is good for people with disability because, um, you know, I'm a disabled vet, but if I was to fall in, a, in a, a pile of powder, I don't have to worry about aggravating any injuries. I don't have to worry about gaining any new injuries. You know what I mean? The peace is something that you can't find anywhere else. And that clean, crisp mountain there, it, it makes it all better. Um, I think that it's a, a wonderful thing for like-minded people of color to, to meet each other and to, to feel like we can do whatever we want to do and we don't have to accept any limitations that even our own friends can put on us at times. The Black people and the people of color that I grew up with that have never had the chance to experience this, the first thing they say is, oh, that's for white people. And um, I, I've never felt like Somebody's race should be able to limit anything. A lot of people, they, they get caught in the stigmas. That's some members of the National Brotherhood of Skiers speaking on how being a part of the organization has changed their lives and in many ways has expanded their horizons and opened up new avenues of fun and adventure. The MBS is considered the largest organization of Black skiers in the world. And its annual Black Ski Summit, which attracts skiers of color from across the globe, celebrates its golden anniversary this year right here in Colorado. We welcome Henry Rivers, the president of the MBS, and Ramel Ward, founder of the Denver-based outdoors group known as the BIPOC Mountain Collective. Welcome to you both. Thanks for having us. We're going to get into the details of the Golden Anniversary Ski Summit. And believe me, it's not, as they say, your mother's typical ski summit. But first, let's address the so-called elephant in the room. As I alluded to in my intro, it's just keeping it real, when many people conjure up the image of a skier, and of course, this depends on where you grew up and what type of environments you've been in, they don't necessarily think of a Black person or a person of color. So, Henry, is that a fair assessment? And if so, why is that? 
Well, yes, that's a fair assessment. And first of all, it's the National Brotherhood of Skiers, but we are in the process of updating our name. We've just voted that in back in October. Mm-hmm. So we're going to be called the National Brotherhood of Snow Sports. Mm. We want to be much more inclusive and let our membership, our skiers and riders know that this is one club for all snow sports. Uh, getting to your question, why is that? Um you know, there are, there are so many reasons that have been put out there as to why the majority of the skiers that you see are white. Economics, geographic location, just not knowing about the sport. Those are some of the common reasons for people to say that Black people are not heavily represented in this industry and in this sport. But I can tell you, as Ramel can tell you, the Black people that I know that once they start skiing, they pick it up and they become lifelong snow sports enthusiasts. We're on our way to breaking that stereotype and that myth that Black people don't ski. That's the farthest thing from the truth. I've been skiing over 51 years. Um, so when people tell me Black people don't ski, I look at them like they've got two heads because I've been skiing my whole life (laughs) and it's something that I totally enjoy. And it's something that I hope to do. I hope to take my last run skiing and just keel over and call call it a life, you know? Do we have any data to refer to, like statistically, how many black skiers are out there across the country? I look at the statistics that the um, National Ski Area Association gathers Mm-hmm. And SIA, Snow Sports Industries of America, gather. And they say that presently about 9.7% of skier days are done by Blacks. Their annual number is between 50 and 60 million skier days a year. So 9% of that, almost 10% of that, is done by Black skiers. As you referenced, you have been skiing for decades now, like 50 years. I have to ask, how did you get into it? I grew up in um, Jamaica, Queens, New York, Mm. uh, until I was about 10 years old. Then my parents moved us upstate New York into the Catskills. When we got there, we were about six miles away from a ski area. Mm -hmm. And, you know, back in the, the late 60s, early 70s, we got tons of snow. So Thanksgiving came and you had three feet of snow outside on the ground. I wasn't going to sit in the house from November 23rd to March (laughs) 20th, looking at all this snow outside and not go outside. So, you know, I I found a pair of skis, everything fit the boots The you know, the the skis were quite long, but I (laughs) I had no idea how, what the suggested length was for myself, but these skis fit, the boots fit. So I just went outside and pushed off and started going down the hill. And, you know, the rest is history. I I kept going at it. It was, it was honestly, it was the coldest experience I ever had. My hands (laughs) would freeze every day. Um, Your toes would get cold. The boots were not waterproof. We'd put bread bags, the plastic bread bags. I put those over my feet, over my socks, into the ski boot to try to keep them dry you know, I came in, I'd come in every 30 minutes, hands frozen like ice cubes, throw them out and go back out and do it again. The reason for that is because the thrill of powering yourself down the hill at your own your own speed, your, 
you know, it's just amazing. It's just a, a feeling of freedom, a feeling of being one with the environment. It's just been a rewarding experience. Anything that's bothering you in life, put it aside and go ski. Well, you're making me laugh when you're talking about the cold part because I am uh, a very proud uh, Southerner <laughs> originally. And uh, sometimes I'm like, wait, people want to be cold? <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, so you will have to, I, I would be a great test subject if you could get me to do this. <laughs> but well, uh, let me tell you, the technology has changed all of that. Okay. Because mm -hmm. we're talking 50 years ago, we didn't have the types of fabrics and, and materials that are used to make the outerwear and, and the base layers that we use now. So I, I rarely get cold skiing anymore. And if you're properly attired, properly fit up, there's no way, there's no reason that you can't stay warm out there in the environment. Mm, good to know. Good to know. I think that might need to be in your recruiting materials. <laughs> but what kind of reactions have you gotten over the years? I mean, you talked about 50 years as an African-American man hitting the slopes. I mean, you're hanging out at ski resorts and you're in these little small ski towns. What has been the reaction to you? Well, the reaction is exactly what you would think. You know, you, you, you got all types of stares. You got all types of comments. And if you let that deter you from what you're going to do, you won't be successful. I never let it deter me because I enjoyed skiing so much. I just wanted to keep going. So whatever anybody had to say that was negative or derogatory, I, I really didn't hear it. I, I heard it, but I didn't hear it. I was not going to hear it because I wasn't going to let it affect what I was going to do because I knew that I was going to learn how to ski. Now, Ramel, let's bring you into the conversation. So from what I understand, you two have experienced some, shall I say, interesting reactions and responses to you as a Black man skiing, snowboarding, and engaging in winter sports in general. Tell us about that. Yeah, so I've had um, uh, some... Funny experiences, not so funny experiences. Um, like, I still remember when I founded uh, BMC, Bipop Mountain Collective. You know, I would always go out snowboarding with uh, my Army friends, right? And we mm -hmm. hang out with your Army friends, like, you know, we're all smoking and joking, having a good time. And, you know, it kind of made you feel welcome. We're all the same color, green, right? But what ended up happening is, is I started going out on my own without my Army buddies. You know, I, much like Henry said, I'd be, like, the only guy person of color out there you know and sometimes you get stares a lot of times you get comments uh people always asking questions like well why don't black people ski or anything like that and then you get the off-color comments and things like that and after so many of the you know the whole i'm not racist but comments you know mm. i was just like you know what, screw this uh i'm gonna start my own club and that's what i did and uh that worked out well but on the funnier side, um, where I really started getting into snowboarding was actually I was assigned to Korea, right? So in your military service. Yes, during my military service. Mm -hmm. Imagine snowboarding, right? And it's all Koreans. And we get done, right? And they're all giving me the thumbs up and, you know, talking to me in Korean. And then I take my helmet and mask off and their eyes just get huge, like <laughs> you know, they don't they don't they see me at you. all to begin with, but then they see me on the snowboard, you know, I was like, wow, you know, so uh it, it's not always bad. How did you get involved in skiing? 
I still remember I was at uh, Lincoln University, Jefferson City, Missouri, and I walked into a pawn shop and I saw a snowboard and it was like $5. I think I had seven in my pocket. So I bought it and I had no idea or knew anything about snowboarding at all. So what it turned out it was, was it was a child snowboard. So it's one of those plastic ones <laughs> with the uh, little rubber grips that go over your feet, right? Mm-hmm. So much like Henry, when I started, I was out in tennis shoes and that's it. And I had no idea what I was doing. I just went to the hill by the uh, football stadium and just threw myself down it. I didn't have a helmet. I didn't have gloves. I had on <laughs> tennis shoes and much like Henry said, it was an absolutely horrid experience because it felt like I got in a fight every day because I was sore and I just slowly started getting equipment. So I bought hockey gloves and then I bought a hockey helmet and then I got some of my army goggles from ROTC to wear. <laughs> right. And then I got real smart and I got the supply sergeant at my unit to issue me a pair of winter boots. So I had <laughs> army winter boots for the Cold War. And I just looked absolutely uh, ridiculous trying to just ski down uh, or snowboard down this hill. And I think I did that for every day for about three weeks. Mm-hmm. Um, the only thing I could do was go in a straight line, which is what exactly you're not supposed to do. But, you know, it, it, it was a lot of fun. It was a lot of fun. I, I didn't get a lesson until I think it was Korea. Henry, you clearly have an affinity for it. Why do you love skiing? And in your view, what is special about it? And why should more Black people and people of color be interested in trying it? What do I like about skiing? And what's always fascinated me is that I can come down a run, a trail, and make 100 turns. 99 of those turns might not be too good. But one of those turns is perfect. It's just what I've been trying to do, trying to make a nice clean arc and 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 have my tip and my tail ride right through the line. And, and I was like, wow, that's what skiing's about. So, you know, the other 99 will practice and, and you just constantly do it so that you can get two good turns <laughs> in a run or three good turns, you know? So it's it's always you trying to be better at coming down a trail, trying to be better at what you want to call your craft or your sport that you enjoy so much. It's just always challenging. There's never a day that I ski that I win every turn. Never, never happens. So I can always improve on what I'm doing. And I like to improve. I like to get better. You know, practicing and training is all great. And then you have one run and it's just like, wow. That's what this is all about. Why do you think it's important, Ramel, to diversify this world? Right. So it's important to diversify it because when you you don't diversify just for diversity's sake. Um, When you have different people of different sports and different ethnicities and backgrounds, uh, it makes the overall experience better. You know what I'm saying? Um, Just to if you start inviting uh, snowboarders, you know, you get a different vibe 
then you do one and necessarily just skiers. And then if you bring in black snowboarders or Latino snowboarders, Asian skiers, whatever it may be, the, the culture is slightly different. Uh, snowshoers, they're a bit different than snowboarders and skiers. Snowmobilers are a whole another animal. And then people who ski bike, you know, we're a little nuts. So that's even different. Well, Romel, you mentioned earlier being, you know, often being in settings where you were the only or one of few people of color. Those experiences of feeling a little bit isolated or maybe absent of your Black culture is what inspired you to create the BIPOC Mountain Collective. Um, And this organization is a little bit different in that you include a diverse mix of people of color in your group. Can you tell us about that? Uh, Yes. So uh, BIPOC Mountain Collective, it's Black, Indigenous, and people of color. That's what the acronym stands for. And I, I realized that if we all came together, we would stand a better chance of introducing people to the sport. So what we have is uh, about half of the club is uh, Black or African-American. About another 30% are Latino, 20% are Asian. And then we have two Native Americans or Indigenous persons that are uh, in the club also. So we're, we're pretty uh, diverse. Henry, the National Brotherhood of Skiers, how many members do you have? And I want to be clear, it's an organization, but the membership is comprised of several other diverse ski organizations across the country. Can you tell us more about that? We have 54 clubs across the United States and the UK. Within those 54 clubs, we have upwards of 5,000 members. And you even have one in Compton, California. (laughs) Oh yeah, oh, I was yeah. just I, yeah. that that struck me as like wow. I didn't think they had much snow in Southern California. <laughs> we got we've got clubs in Miami. We've got clubs in St. Louis. We've got clubs in Jacksonville, Atlanta, North Carolina. You know, and and North Carolina has a couple of mountains. Um, people don't realize that, but we're all over the place. Mm-hmm. You know, we we have fun races. We have a lot of competitions at the summit. That in itself brings our memberships back every year. You know, we got little internal rivalries with uh, this guy. Oh, he beat me two years in a row and I'm coming back to beat him. And then you watch the race and the guys, you know, they're they're intermediate races. So they're nothing really great. But it's it doesn't matter how good you are. You know, because you got somebody that you're going after and you're calling out and it's just so much fun to enjoy the mountain with someone else that has the same vibe or the same vision of what it is to be outdoors and really enjoy the outdoors. The Black Ski Summit starts this weekend in Vail. It marks a 50 year effort to create inclusivity on the slopes. My name is Daisy Palma and I am a Latina snowboarder. I am based uh, in Colorado Springs, and I've been snowboarding for about two seasons now. Um, It's been positive. Um, You know, you see people of all ages, skin colors, and everything else, so it kind of makes you happy that you could be included into something so cool. Even though it's a small population of us on the slopes, we still get happy, you know, when we see each other. My brother actually was here from California. He just left two days ago. He flew out here from California just to try snowboarding, and he was pretty well. I was actually jealous he was able to hit some turns that I'm not able to hit, and I'm still learning still, even though it's my second season. 
Daisy will be among the members helping the National Brotherhood of Skiers celebrate its 50th anniversary this weekend in Vail. Now, let's get back to the final part of my conversation with MBS President Henry Rivers and Ramel Ward, the founder of the BIPOC Mountain Collective based in Denver. Henry, so your big annual ski summit is in Vail this year for the big anniversary year. Why Vail? Well, the presidents voted on it. Um, the, we choose our venue by the vote of all of our presidents. We probably put Vail on the table because Vail, you know, when you when people ask you, oh, are you a skier? Oh, yeah, sure, I'm a skier. Have you ever skied at Vail? Huh. Have you ever skied at Aspen? So those are some of the first names that come out as ski destinations that everyone across the planet, skier or non-skier, know. Yeah. Vail has partnered with the MBS and they've helped support our winter outreach program substantially. I should note Vail has a long history of supporting the MBS Black Ski Summit, even dating back to 1977 when the annual summit was held every other year. And Vail hosted the organization's third ever gathering. The first was held in Aspen in 1973 and the second was held in Sun Valley in 1975. And in 2022, the event was held in Snowmass, and Vail Resorts was the platinum sponsor for that. That's correct. So I always heard about this epic weekend, and it was often in Colorado, and I heard legendary stories about this. But the MVS kind of takes a unique spin on like what you might consider a traditional ski summit. So some might call it a little extra swag. <laughs> so, of course, there is the skiing, but you also incorporate in a lot of social gatherings and events such as the gala and you even have a gospel concert? A gospel fest, yes. Um, I'm glad you said Vail in 77. You know, my first summit statewide was at Vail in 1997. Mm -hmm. And, you know, when I got there, I saw five thousand black skiers and riders at Vail. I've never seen that many black people skiing in my life. And, you know, maybe some people will think, oh, they were just out there. Most of them don't know how to ski. Romel can attest to it that there were a ton of very good skiers. You know, you're coming there. I'm coming there saying, yeah, I grew up skiing my whole life. I'm going I'm to ski these guys down. Not happening. <laughs> there were so many good skiers there and riders there. Uh, it just opened your eyes. What I was doing in New York, somebody was doing in Detroit, somebody was doing in Tahoe. Some, you know, they were they were doing it all over the country. And now we didn't have social media back then to the extent that we have it now. You had to get a quarter, or actually back then I had to get a dime and call somebody. Now with social media, now we can communicate and connect. But before, we didn't have any way to connect. So we were all operating independently. So the Brotherhood really brought you all together. Definitely. You know, definitely. And then when you went back to your mountain, I come back to New York and I'm skiing at my mountain again. I'm the only black kid on the hill skiing. Well, I wasn't a kid at that time. You brought back NBS with you. So now I'm on the mountain and, and you look at it in a totally different light. All right. Your perspective of what's happening now, it doesn't even matter because, you know, there's 98 percent of the people on the hill are white. But you remember that week that you just spent out west where 
90% of the people on that hill were black, you're like, yeah, yeah, we can we can do the thing here. And, you know, you can say what you want to say, but wait till the summit comes. We're all going to be out there skiing. And, and, you know, it's just, it just builds strength in you and lets you continue doing what you love to do. Ramel, tell us about your reactions and memories of the MVS Ski Summit. Like, what, what did it feel like for you? I remember my first summit, and he's right with the, you know, there's different snowboarders and skiers from all over. And, you know, I thought I was really good because I've been riding in Korea, Germany, and, uh, you know, Colorado. And, you know, I go every weekend. Then uh, I get on the lift with this older gentleman, and he just absolutely smokes me. And I was straight lining down the hill. So it was a bit of a humbling experience, but it was great because, you know, afterwards when you're done, you know, you go off and, you know, you go to the uh, various social events afterwards, you know, and, you know, either you're having some beers or non-alcoholic drinks, you go to the gospel fest, the fashion show. I mean, it's just, it's great. It reminds me a bit of being back at my HBCU campus, you know, and that week-long homecoming that you have. Historically uh, Black College, yes, in university. Yes, for my Black College. So it was just like, I felt like I was home. Your organization usually brings in a big national musical act every year. And I hear the person that you have this year is pretty huge, which makes total sense with this being your 50th anniversary and all. So they are a Grammy Award-winning artist who performs, but who also has written some of the biggest hits for artists such as Beyonce, Rihanna, Celine Dion, and the late Whitney Houston. So tell us, who is it? Neo. Neo. (laughs) Yes, yes. We're very excited to have them come. It's going to be just going to be a great experience. You mentioned there's fashion show, a gala, gospel fest, and that's all exciting stuff. But is it fair to say that it's not just about skiing and parties for the MBS? Your leadership has been laser focused on a bigger mission. Tell us about that, Henry. Well, I'm glad you brought that up because the mission of the National Brotherhood of Skiers is to identify, develop, and support athletes of color that are going to win international and Olympic competitions representing the United States and to increase participation in winter sports. So that was created in the early 80s to support our Olympic hopefuls, to support identifying and training young Black athletes that we could get on the U.S. ski and snowboard team. This year, we have our largest group of athletes sponsored by the OSF, the Olympic Scholarship Fund. We have 23 athletes that we're representing and we're sponsoring. Now, of course, you mentioned that effort, but your central mission is to introduce more Black people to winter sports in general. It is our primary mission. It's the only way that we can feed our athletic base, Mm. you know, and we've we partnered with U.S. Ski and Snowboard and they understand that for all the Winter Olympics, the United States has only had white athletes represented on podium, okay? With the exception of bobsledding, we have to broaden our athletic pool. And how do we do that? By introducing more athletes of color and black athletes to the sport. So our winter outreach is is paramount in in trying to get this accomplished. So yes, um, 
exposing underrepresented youth to the sport is a big part of what we're doing. Well, in our final few moments of this interview, let's talk about the challenges you all face, um, both of you, with this effort to diversify snow sports, skiing. Uh, what are the challenges and what are you all doing to get around those challenges? Henry, let's start with you. If you look at skiing across this country, you're going to see 50, 60-year-old white men. And if you look at that within the MBS, the National Brotherhood of Snow Sports, you're going to see that same demographic. It's about 50 to 70-year-olds that we're aging out. You know, so we need to recruit. We need to bring in younger, a younger demographic. And with that said, Ramel can really tell you a little bit more about what we're trying to do and what are our biggest obstacles. I'm going to predict that some of those things are cost and even things like childcare. Right. So there are several barriers, right? And I'll, I'll just lump them into three big categories that uh, you can continually forever expound upon. One of them is cost, right? A lot of the, the issues become is people between, you know, 25 and 40 who want to go skiing or snowboarding. They may have just started families, things of that nature. So the high cost of some of the lodging and gas and all that just kind of really stacks up. So what we've done to counter some of that is what we do is uh, we do the carpooling to the mountains. We try to assist and we're trying to work with the MBS to offer a learn to ski options. And then lastly, it's the tailgates and uh, building a community. Now, the second big pot is it's just the, the imagery. Right. So when you look at a lot of the advertisements and things about skiing, you see a very wealthy looking uh, white couple. And, you know, maybe he's a CEO of whatever and she's a neurosurgeon. A lot of times, you know, you'll hear not only from white people, but you'll hear from black people like black people don't ski. It's cold. Right. <laughs> but then I show them video from the MBS. I show them stuff from homecoming. I show them my group. And they're like, oh. I didn't know we can do that, but I don't know anything about it. So then it's education and introducing them to the sport and showing them that it can be a good time. And then the uh, last thing is we've really tried to leverage uh, our sponsors and uh, social media to reach out to these people. Um, you know, some there's like Facebook, TikTok and all this. We're just really trying to push this out so that people will see it and be like, oh, that people do ski or we'll part. We've talked with, uh, I think it's Vail, Aspen, Altera. A couple other people are starting now to have uh, uh, show people of color in their advertisements. Right. Because part of being able to introduce people to it or you figuring out if you can do it or not is seeing someone like you doing it. So just kind of giving a, a sense of reaching out and being inclusive and people kind of identifying that they too can do this. Exactly. It's it's reaching out and just showing that they too can do this and that it's not impossible and there are uh, less expensive ways to do it so that when you then get good, you can come on out to Vail or wherever and ride. Wow. Fascinating. Fascinating. Henry and Ramel, thank you both for joining us. Thank you for having me. Ramel Ward is the founder of the Denver-based BIPOC Mountain Collective. 
Henry Rivers is the president of the National Brotherhood of Skiers, which is changing its name to the National Brotherhood of Snow Sports. The NBS is celebrating the 50th anniversary of its annual Black Ski Summit in Vail, February 4th through 11th. It's considered the largest annual gathering of skiers and snowboarders of color in the world. We'll leave you now with Make Me Better by Grammy-winning artist Neo, who will be performing at the NBS Summit this weekend in Vail. I'm Shonda Thomas-Whitfield. Thanks for joining us today. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC. I'm a Scott if I'm going to be king.